0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Liam McCullum Show. Today, I have another solo episode for you. I am planning on reading through a substack that I wrote a couple of weeks ago called A Libertarian Analysis of War and Collective Punishment. Um, I'm trying to publish every single day, and this is a longer post that I, I published. Um, and I'm not really trying to put constraints on uh, the type of things that I'm publishing, so... I, some days I might just publish a, a small quote if I'm not feeling up to writing an entire article, and other days I'll I'll try to um, write more comprehensive things. Uh, I I did a previous podcast on Malthusianism, and that was inspired by a um, another longer post that I I wrote for Substack, and um, today I have another longer article. And when I had Dan Sanchez on my podcast, who is the inspiration for me writing every single day, he he is is doing the same thing. And and he essentially told me that he doesn't strive for perfection. Um, he and he gave me some tips for this habit of of writing every day. And um, it, it was a really great podcast, and I encourage encourage everyone to listen to it. Um, so there were. M- many days that went by where I was contemplating not publishing this article because it wasn't to the standards that I think it should be. But um, I think it's still very valuable. And at the very least, I think content like this will help supplement the podcast uh, when I don't have interviews scheduled. So I wanted to read through this today. Um, and for anyone who hasn't already, just I'll, I'll link to the Substack in this description. Uh, please subscribe. Also remember to subscribe to this podcast, give it a like, share if you if you like it. Um and then before we get into to that Substack on war and collective punishment, I did want to give an update to a Substack that I wrote yesterday. For anyone who's following it, you'll you'll have read that I uh, you'll have read the the Substack where I encouraged everyone to reach out to Senator Dane, Senator Tester and Uh, Representative Rosendale to support the War Powers Resolution to end U.S. support um, in the war in Yemen. And unfortunately, Senator Sanders did not follow through with uh, the vote he did. He buckled to White House pressure, which is really unfortunate because earlier in the Biden presidency, he had expressed that he wanted to end the war in Yemen. And I invited Anel Sheline. I think that's how you pronounce her name. I, I invited her on the show and and um, seemed very optimistic. We, we talked about it back then and I've had Scott Horton on the podcast and he's talked about how this war is the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. Um, and it was exacerbated by uh, US sanctions and and uh, the, the coronavirus pandemic and um, all of the government you know, solutions to the pandemic and the long-term effects of that. And um, we, I was really optimistic. I thought that this vote would come to the floor, but unfortunately the the Biden White House did whip votes against it. And then uh, Senator Sanders announced that he wasn't going to bring it to the floor, Um, but that if the Biden administration doesn't try to pursue an end to the war, he will bring it um, to the floor again but it's unfortunate that it, that it didn't happen yesterday because fighting is still going on, um, on the ground in Yemen, yeah, I even though there, there was a ceasefire that uh, it looks like the ceasefire has stopped. Um, I don't know if the blockade is still going on. Um, and I, I might do a, an interview about that in the future, but I, I would also encourage everyone to listen to, um, dot their, their new podcast that they do daily, uh, it's hosted by Dave DeCamp, and he just reads through the Antiwar.com blog uh, and updates you with, with the news, and I, I try to listen to that every day to stay up to date. Um, so yeah, I, I did publish an article yesterday encouraging everyone to uh, call um, Danes, Tester, and, and Rosendale to, to support this, and uh, unfortunately... The vote will not happen. But included in that that substack is a quote, of, a very encouraging quote uh, by Representative Rosendale. I received an email from his office, and I included that quote in, in the substack where he essentially says that he does not support any um, funding for foreign foreign interventions, especially when civilians are are being harmed. Um, and he also expressed that he does not support sending weapons to. Saudi Arabia. So, we have at least one of our congressmen on board with with this sentiment. And for for people who don't know that, um, or who didn't know that Rosendale was was aligned and that he was fairly libertarian when it comes to foreign policy, I just wanted to share that quote with you guys because it's. I, I do think Rosendale is one of the better uh, representatives in D.C., even though he. He might not be libertarian on everything, but um, if if you're opposed to sending aid to Ukraine and, and prolonging the war in Ukraine, and um, if if you want to end the blockade in Yemen, that's that's pretty great. And I am willing to shout out anyone who is good on on war, even if they're a leftist. And that act actually is a really good segue into my article because um, it's in response to caitlin johnstone and um another leftist who both of whom i think are are really good uh on on foreign intervention in general um but they are leftists so they have this collectivist mindset still they they aren't libertarian um and i think there are some serious consequences as a result and um Even their outlook on foreign policy isn't perfect because because of this. So uh, I'll just share my screen so you guys can see this uh, Substack article for people who are watching it on YouTube. Um, So it's called A Libertarian Analysis of War and Collective Punishment. And the subtitle is How Warhawks Equate the People and Government to Justify Violence Against innocence and how a libertarian theory of foreign policy can be used to analyze war and justice properly. And so I, I included a tweet by Caitlin Johnstone who, who was responding to someone else, but she says we oppose that country's government, not its people is the same line spewed by literally every warmongering neocon about literally every nation they've wanted to destroy. Um, So she, she's saying that that this quote um or saying that we oppose the country's government and not its people uh there's nothing new being said there and that's the exact same sentiment expressed by by war hawks when they when they try to justify intervening in intervening in a foreign country um for instance like in Iraq uh the Iraqi people need to be um, liberated from it's it's government. Uh so I, I just say that I, I disagree with Caitlin Johnstone on economics and many domestic issues, but she is one of the best non-interventionist voices on the left. But her her criticism of conflating a country's government with its people comes from a very good place because she's she's not trying to carry water for the war party and and she's trying to resist uh doing so by by touting the same narrative. Um and, and that specific tweet is in response to uh someone saying that that we need to support the people of China. And um she essentially says that supporting the people of China and, and not their government, um yeah, so she's she's responding against the sentiment really that that somehow if if you are saying that you need to support the people of china and not their government that that somehow means that the u.s should also defend taiwan against china military militarily um so the the tweet in in that thread she says it still amazes me how many people who fancy themselves anti-establishment critical thinkers will spend all day mindlessly regurgitating mainstream media lines about china and then i say i think johnstone is is mistaken and completely dismissing the idea that we should separate the people and the government, uh, just as a concept, and and that there is a methodological reason to separate the two, uh, because just like politicians and war criminals will separate the government and the people when useful, they will also conflate the two when useful. Um, and and just because they uh, they separate um, the two doesn't necessarily mean that that we shouldn't um also separate the two but but do it for the right reasons um so i say government officials will equate the people in their government to justify aggression against innocence and impose collective punishment on an entire country and then in the article i i provide um three clear examples of this the first coming from the mouth of u.s government officials the second from an enemy of the united states and the third from a current ally of the United States. And um, I say these three examples demonstrate the problem of collective punishment. A libertarian theory of foreign policy provides a lens to look at war and justice properly. And before I go on, um, after I wrote this article, a another example of a leftist equating uh, the people in, in the government or reacting against this um, I, I saw it in, in an interview, and I, I just wanted to share this clip with you guys. Um, so, at least this, I, I don't think this is necessarily the same, but it exposes this leftist problem of conflating uh, uh, the people and, and their government um, in, in general, and, and why, why we should separate the two. So whereas Caitlin Johnstone is saying um that we we shouldn't uh separate the two or or she's reacting the to the idea that the people are not their government. Uh this upcoming clip is a demonstration of exactly why I think we need to separate the two. So uh these two examples um are kind of uh opposite poles that demonstrate the same point that I'm I'm trying to get at. Uh, so let me just share this really quick it is a it's a clip from an interview um or a panel with clint russell who i've had on the show dave smith jimmy Dore, and craig jardula i think that's how you pronounce his name um so yeah listen to what craig says here
1: and i'll Ask you a question, Dave, and then maybe, Jimmy, you can jump in after Dave gives his Mm -hmm. opinion if you have anything to add up. And then, Clint, why don't you back clean up and then give your your opinion as well? Sure. Uh, Because I've said this before. um, Sometimes I feel the ideological handcuffs of the libertarians and the libertarian party can be a problem. I interviewed Scott Horton at uh, Freedom Fest, and I questioned him about whether or not he thought it was justified that Russia and Putin went into Ukraine. Because I am standing here, I'm an anti-imperialist leftist. I don't believe in war as well, but I am also a realistic person about what's going on. And I don't think that the the Russian Federation and Putin were left any choice. I heard you on Rogan, Dave, talk about the same thing. And you kind of had this whole mindset of like, hey, man, I'm a libertarian. I am anti-war. I don't want to get involved. But how can we say that Putin wasn't justified for going into Ukraine after eight years of the government being overthrown. You both mentioned on that last show you went on the Victoria Nuland situation. So I'd like to hear your point of view on that. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I think that kind of leads to inaction. If we stick to our ideologies where we can't be for any military intervention, after all these things have happened, how can we make decisions You know, outside of what we, honestly believe when it's necessary to make those decisions in foreign policy
2: well um so i so your concern is being if there was too much anti-interventionism like in russia or something like that so they wouldn't support them invading ukraine well look i mean the 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 truth is and this is an interesting position for me to be in because i'm always arguing uh how you know america isn't justified in their interventions but i i think that Vladimir Putin – look, the the United States uh, foreign policy for the last 30 years, particularly toward Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union, has been just insane and reckless and evil and provocative at every single turn. Uh, They've certainly pushed Vladimir Putin. And um, at least according to um, William Perry, who was Bill Clinton's uh, secretary of defense, he said that Vladimir Putin is operating – uh under the like he believes that there is an american policy to assassinate and overthrow him and i don't know if that's true but it wouldn't be that shocking you know if it was true um and so that's the kind of the position we put this guy in but no i mean he's not justified in invading the ukraine because he's i mean look man i you know it's hard to get these estimates in the fog of war but at least Tens of thousands of innocent people have been slaughtered in the war. It's just it's absolutely horrible. And the fact that he was, uh, you know, pushed by the most powerful, you know, power centers in the world does not, you know, like that. It's like I think far too often people conflate people with their governments. And the people of Ukraine are really more victims of their own governments than anybody else. I mean, obviously, there's some very, very nasty groups in Ukraine. You have the C-14 and the right sector guys and Sabata and all, all those guys. But there's also just a lot of people in Ukraine who lived under the incredibly corrupt um, uh, government of, of Yanukovych, the, the corrupt Poroshenko government, and now the corrupt Zelensky government. And these, by the millions, they're having to flee now because of this war. Just tons of innocent people being killed. and. They're always like, there has to be, there there had to be some other option of how Vladimir Putin could have handled this. I I think Scott threw out the example of, you know, he could have cut off all natural gas to Europe. He could.
0: So um, Craig and Caitlin Johnstone are both on the left. And we see Craig here conflating the people and their government. Whereas Caitlin Johnstone is reacting against the idea. Um, and I just, I wanted to give you both of those examples before I get into the analysis, because I think they both demonstrate this collectivist problem and, and really the collectivist theory of foreign policy. Um, so I'm just gonna share my screen again uh, to begin reading through the rest of the article. So as I say, there there are three examples that demonstrate the problem of collectivist punishment. A libertarian theory of foreign policy provides a lens to look at war and justice properly. Um, so the first example I, I show is the U.S. bombing of Iraq. Uh, and this this was the first example I, I came across um, of, of government officials equating people in their government to justify aggression against innocents. And i say let's look at when the united states conducted a strategic bombing on iraq's infrastructure in 1991 specifically targeting electrical plants oil refineries and transportation networks Um, the pentagon in a washington post article written in june 1991 acknowledged that the 43-day assault severely impacted and harmed the civilian population and economy and explained that they quote sought to achieve some of their military objective objectives the persian gulf by disabling iraqi society at large so um they're not just targeting the government and government officials that they they perceive to be guilty of crimes or whatever they're they're imposing these these penalties on on society um, and I continue the air force defended these bombardments in a press briefing cited in the article by blurring the lines between the Iraqi people and the Iraqi government. Um, so this is a quote from an air force officer. Uh, we'll actually know this. is This is a quote from the New York times article or the Washington post article. Um, it says among the justifications offered now, particularly by the air force in recent briefings is the Iraq, is that Iraqi civilians were not blameless for Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. Quote, the definition of innocence gets to be a little bit unclear, said a senior air force officer, noting that many Iraqis supported the invasion of Kuwait. Quote, they do live there and ultimately the people have some control over what goes on in their country. End quote. And I say, and since the lines were blurred, they also justified the harm imposed on Iraqi citizens. Um, Now, at the time, a Harvard Health team, um, according to that Washington Post article, reported that the lack of power, fuel, and transportation due to the United States approved economic sanctions and the Air Force bombardments resulted in epidemic levels of cholera and typhoid, which are caused by lack of clean water and predicted that at least 170,000 children under five years of age will die in the coming year from the delayed effects. So at at the time of this 1991 article, that was the prediction. Um, And according to 1995 WHO data, the diet of the Iraqi population was at semi-starvation levels at the overall availability of and the overall availability of calories decreased by 65%. And Iraq was only receiving 25% of the needed red meat and poultry, 40% of cereals, 10% of fish, and 10% of sugar. Um, and and these were the intended effects. Uh, in, in the mentioned Washington Post article, an anonymous Air Force planning officer is cited as saying, and, and this is his quote, people say, you didn't recognize that it was going to have an effect on water or sewage. Well, what were we trying to do with United States approved economic sanctions? Help out the Iraqi people? No. What we were doing with the attacks on infrastructure was to accelerate the effect of the sanctions. So he's basically admitting that the effects were to starve the people. And in an infamous 1995 report that has has since been contested, Uh, the UN reported that a half million children died as a result of the sanctions and bombings. Um, And a more conservative estimate puts that number at around 300,000. But uh, the the reason I included that, that 1995 report, which, which is contested um, is because in a 60 minutes interview, um, correspondent Leslie Stahl, referring to that report said to the late UN ambassador, Madeline Albright, she she asked her this question. She said, we have heard that a half million children have died. Um, And she, she asks, I mean, that's more children than died in Hiroshima. And you know, is the price worth it? Uh, And, and Madeline Albright um, in a response, she never lived down. She, she said, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. So uh, at the time when, when they thought that the the result was a half million children dying as a result of the sanctions and bombings, even though that that number is contested now at the time, Madeleine Albright thought that, uh, that number, the, the overestimate, uh, was, was justified and, and worth it. Um, and, and I say that the goal of these devastating sanctions was to punish the people of Iraq until they deposed Saddam Hussein, uh, Lieutenant General Charles, A Horner who commanded the air campaign and an anonymous Air Force planner communicated this exact same thing in the Washington Post article. Um, The Air Force planner is quoted as saying, big picture, we wanted to let people know, get rid of this guy and we'll be more than happy to assist in rebuilding. We're not going to tolerate Saddam Hussein or his regime. Fix that and we'll fix your electricity. Um, So he's calling on the people to, to, to fix their government To depose Saddam Hussein. And until that happens, um, we're not going to fix your electricity. Uh, And then the quote from Horner, um, Lieutenant General Charles Horner, who commanded the the campaign, um, said in an interview that a side benefit was the psychological effect on ordinary Iraqi citizens of having their lights go out. And I just I, I conclude this this example with saying um, the Biden administration, in the case of sanctions on Russia, the most recent sanctions on Russia, um, as a result of the war in Ukraine, has has tried to distance itself from the truth that, that sanctions hurt citizens as much if not more than than the government. Um, they're you, they're not making this argument um, the same argument that was made in 1991, but but the truth still exists. So when, when we see the Biden administration try to justify sanctions on Russia, know that at one time, um, the United States military was explicitly saying that, that the results of these sanctions were to punish the people so that they would depose their, uh, their leaders. And I mean, the same thing should be, should be applied here, um, with this Russian conflict and know that people are suffering in russia and it's not impacting um the leaders as much um so yeah i say with the iraqi bombings this was the explicit goal uh, whereas recently i think the united states uh and and presidencies have tried to distance themselves from that reality and they they try to convince people that sanctions only hurt government officials um, so yeah, that, that's the first example I have of uh, people trying to equate the people and their government to um, justify punishment against them, and and really just this over overall idea of collectivism and, and punishment um, that somehow because your government commits alleged crimes, therefore the people also uh, should be punished for that. Now I think in in the most clear example of this. Um, and in the one that i think makes the the best case i include uh, a, a part about osama bin laden and his letters to america um, i say the case of the iraq bombings is just one of many examples in which innocents are equated with their government in order to rationalize and justify the punishment of citizen or innocence as a proxy for their government the the next example i am going to show is from the pen of an enemy of the united states Osama bin Laden, in his Letters to America, explained how he justified killing innocent citizens. Um, And then I include a full excerpt from his Letters to America. Um, And it says, you may then dispute that all the previous mentioned actions by the U.S. government do not justify aggression against civilians for crimes they did not commit and offenses in which they did not partake. Bin Laden responds, this argument contradicts your continuous repetition that America is the land of freedom and its leaders in this world. Therefore, the American people are the ones who choose their government by way of their own free will, a choice which stems from their agreement to its policies. Thus, the American people have chosen, consented to, and affirmed their support for the Israeli oppression of the Palestinians the occupation and usurpation of their land and its continuous killing, torture, punishment, and expulsion of the Palestinians. The American people have the ability and choice to refuse the policies of their government and even to change it if they want. And then he continues. And in point B, he says, the American people are the ones who pay the taxes, which fund the planes that bomb us in Afghanistan, the tanks that strike and destroy our homes in Palestine, the armies which occupy our lands in the Arabian Gulf, and the fleets which ensure the blockade of Iraq. These tax dollars are given to Israel for it to continue to attack us and penetrate our lands. So the American people are the ones who fund the attacks against us, and they are the ones who oversee the expenditure of these monies in the way they wish through their elected candidates. Point C, also, the American army is part of the American people. It is the very same people who are shamelessly helping the Jews fight against us. Point D, he says, the American people are the ones who employ both their men and their women in the American forces which attack us. Point E, he says, this is why the American people cannot be not innocent of all the crimes committed by the Americans and Jews against us. And point F, Bin Laden says, Allah, the Almighty, legislated the permission and the option to take revenge. Thus, if we are attacked, then we have the right to attack back. Whoever has destroyed our villages and towns, then we have the right to destroy their villages and towns. Whoever has stolen our wealth, then we have the right to destroy their economy. And whoever has killed civilians, then we have the right to kill theirs. And then, when when Bin Laden was asked how he justified killing innocents in an interview with Al Jazeera, he said, "We kill the kings of the infidels, kings of the crusaders, and civilian infidels in exchange for those of our children. They kill." Um, and I just italicize and bold "they" because, uh, again, he he's saying that the the uh, the civilians also kill these people. And then I include the full quote, but I don't think it's necessary here other than that. He just says um, the men that, that God helped attack on September 11th did not intend to kill babies. They intended to destroy the strongest military power in the world. Um, He's responding uh, um, to the idea that, that he killed civilians. And he's saying essentially that um, the, the babies were, were just, um, you know, they they were a result of trying to actual actually take down um, military, uh, the military power, not kill innocents. Um, which is the same justification you hear from neocons. It's it's like, well, why wasn't innocent killed? Well, you know, they were holding innocents as hostage. So when we bombed this this hospital, uh, it's because they they um, put up. Military barricades within the hospital, and 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 they're using innocence as shields. Um, So it's it's the same exact justification um, that that we make. Um, And and then the final example, the final foil that I include in in the article is Zelensky um, regarding Russians. And I say in a more recent example of government leaders calling for collective punishment of citizens and government officials alike, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said that all Russians are responsible for the war and should be barred from Western countries. In an interview with the Washington Post, he said, whichever kind of Russian make them go to Russia, they'll understand then. They'll say, this war has nothing to do with us. The whole population can't be held responsible, can it? But it can. The population picked this government and they're not fighting it, not arguing with it and not shouting at it. Don't you want this isolation? You're telling the whole world that it must live by your rules. Then go and live there. This is the only way to influence Putin. Um, So, I mean, pretty explicitly saying, no, the the whole population can be held responsible. Um, So I just wanted to provide three. Uh, examples um, that I think together are compelling because we have the United States saying it, we have an enemy of the United States, and then an ally of the United States, all all using this theory of collective punishment, um, as I call it in this article. Um, and just regarding Zelensky's quote really quick, uh, I mean, this totally contradicts the, the other reports we hear from uh, Western media that Putin is, um, jailing anti-war protesters and also sending anti-war protesters to the the front of the lines to fight in Ukraine. Um, so the, the idea that, that the whole population is, is responsible and that the whole population also picked the government, uh, the whole population is not shouting at it, is not arguing with it, as he says, uh, and that they all want to abide by Putin's rules is, is ridiculous. Um, so then I, I continue um, of the three examples mentioned above the Osama bin Laden quote presents itself as the clearest example of the philosophy that equates government with its people. And therefore it is the, the one most worthy of responding to it in full. Um, I think, I think that's the case because it's pretty lengthy and he, he offers philosophical arguments as to, to why, uh, he, he equates the two. Um, so he, he explicitly justifies the killing of innocents because in his view, the United States people are the U.S. government. The U.S. government is of the U.S. people. And being that the U.S. is a free country, the U.S. population also chooses its government and therefore also consents to the violence he accuses the U.S. of perpetrating. And I say we need to examine the foundation of his view, which is a collectivist theory of justice and of war and a false belief that all people have consented to their government's actions merely by living in the geographical territory of said government. Um, Additionally, putting aside the question of the truthfulness of his accusations of violence, Bin Laden's quote should lead us to question the philosophical issue of democracy and whether a whole population can really be understood to choose its government in the sense that all can both legally and philosophically be considered responsible for government's actions. That is, I guess, if if fifty one percent of a country support a policy, does that mean that the the other forty nine percent are also um, in agreement with it? Uh, and and I I really try to tackle that that idea in the rest of the article. So in the next portion of of the article that I titled "Toward a Theory of Peace," um, which is the title of an article by Dan Sanchez in uh, the Foundation. Uh Foundation for Economic Education, uh, I say libertarian theory can help us investigate these assumptions and build a proper libertarian theory of war. In his essay toward a theory of peace, Dan Sanchez argues that libertarianism's aim is peace while the collectivist theory of justice only perpetuates war. Libertarianism, Dan says, holds agents of the government to the same moral standards as everyone else and so it rightly looks upon war as mass murder, violating the individual right to life on an industrial scale. Libertarian philosophy is not necessarily a call for pacifism, though. It doesn't prohibit all force. Rather, it permits defense and prohibits aggression. Dan writes, Liberty does not preclude force, but aggression, which is the initiation of force, and war always entails aggression. The term war is almost never used to describe the selective pursuit of justice targeting specific individuals wars target not specific perpetrators to make specific victims whole but whole populations for obliteration and conquest um so dan's pointing out that there there is a a right kind of justice which identifies specific perpetrators uh, And and seeks justice to then make specific individual victims whole, um, not entire populations. Uh, And then I continue in the article, liberty then does not prohibit the pursuit of justice against individual perpetrators who commit violence, but instead liberty prohibits the collateral damage that comes with war, even if it is incidental and not the intent of war. The reasons for liberty's opposition to this collateral damage are twofold. It is contrary to the basic moral precept of libertarianism, the non-aggression principle, and the collateral damage also perpetuates war. So really, I think Dan in this article um, shows that there's kind of like a uh, uh, deontological reason to oppose war and that libertarianism uh, specifically and, and morally uh, prohibits war and and aggression, but also Dan's pointing out that the consequences of war that it, it continues to perpetuate it and the collateral damage just um, uh, makes each side respond to that collateral damage. Uh, so, for instance, if if um, the the example I think of is when uh, a Shiite group attacked a U.S. embassy. In, I think it was Iraq, and um, I think this was involved in the, in this the whole uh, Soleimani fiasco, and and part of the justification for killing Soleimani. Um, but then we retaliated because of that and launched strikes into into Iraq, I believe. And then, but but that whether the the facts are correct there, I think that demonstrates the point. Just like. If, if someone kills our civilians, then we respond, and, and there's just this back and forth. And Dan says in this article that such collective punishment is antithetical to the individualistic notions of justice that are essential to the philosophy of liberty. Libertarians are, are well familiar with how pernicious collectivism is when it comes to domestic affairs, yet its per- perniciousness does not stop at national borders." International collectivist violence is just as pernicious as the domestic variety. It misaligns incentives and engenders intractable conflicts just as badly. Harming foreigners indiscriminately creates grievance among the victims and or their survivors. People don't like having their wedding parties bombed by drones. Survivors of such attacks will sometimes seek retaliation. Those who are young and already on edge may take up arms Those who do not take up arms may give aid, comfort, or sanction to those who do. Now, what shape will the retaliation take? The warfare may be conventional or asymmetric, i.e. terrorism. If the victims have the same collectivist notions of justice that their victimizers had, it will also involve civilian casualties. Then the side of the original attackers will retaliate over those civilian casualties with still further indiscriminate violence. Thus, war is cyclical and self-perpetuating, tending toward an ever-growing pile of victims." And I will link to that um, article by Dance in the description as well, because it's it's a very good read, um, and it's the influence for a lot of this article. Um, so I did want to quote from it there. Uh, but I, I continue in another part of the article titled A Libertarian Theory of War, and I say we, we can derive from the message of liberty expressed above two principles that set the libertarian theory of peace and war apart from collectivist theories of peace and war. The Marxist school in particular describes all conflict as an oppressor class against an oppressed class. In cases of occupation and war, they identify actors as privileged and oppressor countries that exploit oppressed countries. So, I mean, it, it's often through the frame framework of capitalism and the exploitative nation and um, foreign policy is all a result of, you know, capitalist classes and an entire class class or entire classes going up against um, an oppressed class. And it's, it's the same uh, when applied domestically. Um, you know, they're the rich and the poor. Uh, but in the case of foreign policy, they're the, the rich nations uh, targeting the, the poor nations and the exploited, oppressed countries. Um, and I say the framework is always through the lens of power and hierarchy and an entire class is responsible for more on the Marxist idea of class and class consciousness. Um, I attached my article titled Marxist use of Polylogism to evade debate, uh, which I will also include in the description. It's, it's, I include in that article, a, um, link to, or a quote to a part of, of Mises human action where he talks about the idea of class consciousness and how, uh, marxists will use the idea of class consciousness to uh say that their opponents just don't have the correct consciousness or the right logic and therefore um they will never understand and therefore there's no need to debate them on on any logical terms because they're just of an of another class um and it's just using ad hominem attacks to essentially uh really admit that they don't have an argument um And I continue in this article, in contrast to the the Marxist school, the the libertarian school uses methodological individualism to identify individual aggressors and victims and denounces all forms of collective punishment. It determines who those individual aggressors and victims are by applying the non-aggression principle to particular instances of injustice, and that analysis is informed by methodological individualism. Um, And then I, I just define the non-aggression principle um, by quoting libertarian murray rothbard uh, he defines the non-aggression principle as follows he says no one may threaten or commit violence against another man's person or property violence may be employed only against the man who commits such violence that is only defensively against the aggressive violence of another in short no violence may be employed against a non-aggressor here is the fundamental rule from which can be deduced the entire corpus of libertarian theory. And I say war is prohibited by libertarianism because government action is not exempt from the non-aggression principle and war is aggression and imposes collective justice through collateral damage instead of pursuing individual aggressors. Um, And to focus more clearly on the methodology of identifying individual aggressors and why it is important to conceptualize individual aggressors within government separate from innocence, um, we we turn to economist Ludwig von Mises. Um, Mises introduces the idea of methodological individualism in Human Action, and I quote: I, I quoted the entire excerpt from Human Action in in another post uh, that I link in this article, and just introducing the idea of methodological individualism i say in human action mises introduces the distinctive method of uh, austrian economics called praxeology which rests on the axiom that humans engage in purposeful behavior as opposed to reflexive behavior Uh, and as a result um, we learn that proper economics begins with this necessary truth that man acts and uses this study of human action to deduce further implications about human action um and i i give an example uh that that humans act because they perceive their actions will result in a state of affairs that is preferred to the state in which they didn't act at all um and importantly though to to frame all of this mises mises says that that praxeology deals with the actions of individual men um It is only in the further course of its inquiries that cognition of human cooperation is attained and social action is treated as a special case of the more universal category of human action as such. Uh, And this is called methodological individualism. Uh, The method is in response to the concept that man is metaphysically, necessarily, and logically a part of a collectivist whole, or that society begets individuals that there is no way to, to conceptualize an isolated individual or that there is no logical concept as an individual. Um, you know, the the critical theorists, specifically Marcusa, uh, Marcusa, he he um, said that individuals are determined by society. and and Mises is really responding to this idea. And he and he really, he he address it addresses the idea, as a whole but first he says um society that to the idea or claim that society exists before the individual uh he says that it's not really necessary to say that the individual become or exists before society because um a lot of marxists will say well society became or came before individuals um or you know there has been no case where an individual Pre-existed society, like you were born into society, and and he's saying that 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 is vain, and that entire uh, argument is vain, and that logically the notions of a whole and its parts are correlative, but as logical concepts, they are both apart um from time. So it, it is possible to separate individuals and society conceptually, and Mises doesn't outright reject the idea. That there are such things as collectives. Um, on the contrary, Mises is developing methodological individualism uh, to explain social collective behavior. And he says methodological individualism, far from contesting the significance of such collective wholes, considers it as one of its main tasks to describe and to analyze their becoming and their disappearing, their changing structures and their operation. And it chooses the only method fitted to solve this problem satisfactorily, or satisfactorily. And then I I include um, his explanation of, of the method. And he says, first, we must realize that all actions are performed by individuals. A collective operates always through the intermediary intermediary of one or several individuals whose actions are related to the collective as the secondary source. It is the meaning which the acting individuals and all those who are touched by their action attribute to an action that determines its character. It is the meaning that marks one action as the action of an individual and another action as the action of the state or of the municipality. The hangman, not the state, executes a criminal. It is the meaning of those concerned that discerns in the hangman's action an action of the state. A group of armed men occupies a place. It is the meaning of those concerned which imputes this occupation not to the officers and soldiers on the spot, but to their nation. If we scrutinize the meaning of the various actions performed by individuals, we must necessarily learn everything about the actions of collective wholes. For a social collective has no existence in a reality Outside of the individual member's actions, the life of a collective is lived in the actions of the individuals constituting its body. There is no social collective conceivable which is not operative in the actions of some individuals. The reality of a social integer consists in its directing and releasing definite actions on the part of individuals. Thus, the way to a cognition of collective wholes is through an analysis of the individual's actions. As a thinking and acting being, man emerges from his pre-human existence already as a social being. The evolution of reason, language, and cooperation is the outcome of the same process." They were inseparably and necessarily linked together, but this process took place in individuals. It consisted in changes in the behavior of individuals. There is no other substance in which it occurred than the individuals. There is no substratum of society other than the actions of individuals. That there are nations, states, and churches That there is social cooperation under the division of labor becomes discernible only in the actions of certain individuals. Nobody ever perceived a nation without perceiving its members. In this sense, one may say that a social collective comes into being through the actions of individuals. That does not mean that the individual is temporarily antecedent. It merely means that definite actions of individuals constitute the collective. I'm going to repeat that. I, I think I uh, mis- misread that. Um, he says, that does not mean that the individual is temporarily antecedent. It merely means that definite actions of individuals constitute the collective. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mainly to, just to sum it up, it's when, when we are discussing the actions of collectives, um, it can only really be understood through understanding that individuals um, and individual behavior are what animate that that social action and, and the collective action. And it's only possible through through individual action. Um, and, and I continue in the article, I say that using this meth- method, we can see that um, an aggressive war should not be visualized as an entire nation or collective oppressing another. Uh, Instead, we we should use this this method and acknowledge that there are individual actors within a warring nation or a collective that take purposeful action that brings about the war and the crimes that come with it. We must apply this method to our theories of justice, too, um, since there are individual actors that take the steps to bring about war and its consequences. Those individual actors ought to be the ones considered legally responsible or morally responsible, not the entire nation. Um, and, and for demonstration in, in a libertarian theory of justice, it would not be the entire country of Russia that is responsible for the war crimes in Ukraine, but only those individual actors, starting with Putin, who purposefully gave the orders, aided, abetted, or followed through with orders that are actually morally and legally responsible for their crimes. Um, and and I just conclude that uh, we, I say, however, we find that our governments of today are intellectually lazy. They they take the quick and easy option of labeling all in one country as responsible, and they refuse to seek out any semblance of justice with precision. And as a result of this asymmetrical response of killing innocents as proxies for actual guilty parties, the governmental officials who might have originally identified and and were potentially responding to legitimate instances of aggression by another government uh, they, they become aggressors themselves when, when they pursue asymmetrical uh, justice and response. Um, so in, I, I continue responding to uh, bin Laden's accusations in particular, uh, specifically pertaining to his idea that, that all of the American people consented to the, the government and therefore the, the war and the crimes of the government. Um, and I say, we, we must return to those accusations, uh, that the, that all of the United States consented to, and are therefore responsible for the crimes of actors within the government. Um, and Osama bin Laden makes two primary arguments for why the people of the U S are responsible and worthy of punish punishment for the alleged crimes of the U S government. And the, the first is of, of voting. Um, he, he says something to the effect of that. Uh, the the U.S. is a free or democratic country and the people voted for the U.S. government and therefore they are responsible for the actions of the U.S. government. And I reference a previous post that I I did a podcast about actually. And uh, I I posted an excerpt from abolitionist Lysander Spooner's No Treason addressing the idea that voting signifies the consent of the government or of the governed. Um, And in that excerpt, Spooner argues that one that when one considers the percentage of the the population in the U.S. who actually votes, which today is about one half of the population of the United States, and then and when you contrast that with those who never vote or only ever vote in years of excitement like presidential elections, it cannot be argued that the entire population has assented to the government. Um, Spooner Spooner argues that even if the entire United States population had actually voted or, and, and you can make that case it still wouldn't be the case that all had truthfully consented to the government or the actions of individuals within the government. Um, and specifically quoting Spooner, he says, in truth, in the case of individuals, their actual voting is not to be taken as proof of consent, even for the time being on the contrary, it is to be considered that without his consent, Having even been asked, a man finds himself environed by a government that he cannot resist, a government that forces him to pay money, render service, and forego the exercise of many of his natural rights under peril of weighty punishments. He sees, too, that other men practice this tyranny over him by the use of the ballot. He sees further that if he will but use the ballot himself, he has some chance of relieving himself from this tyranny of others by subjecting them to his own. In short, he finds himself without his consent, so situated that if he, if he used the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he may become a slave and he has no other alternative than these two. In self-defense, he attempts the former. His case is analogous to that of a man who has been forced into battle where he must kill others or be killed himself. Um And Spooner goes on in in No True Treason to argue that no person can be understood to consent to the government um, until every person is left perfectly free to consent or not, without thereby subjecting himself or his property to be disturbed or injured by others. Um, From a legal perspective, he, he says that because there is no explicit or written evidence or signatures affirming one's support of government because of secret ballots, voting furnishes no legal evidence as to who the particular individuals are if there are any who voluntarily support the, the constitution or government politicians etc and it therefore furnishes no legal evidence that anybody supports it voluntarily and um just on on top of that i want to make the case that that because uh there is no legal evidence that anybody supports it voluntarily they, they cannot really be understood to be legally responsible for any of the actions of the government either, unless they're actively participating in it. Um, and I, I link to um, the entire excerpt from that part of no treason in, in the article, uh, but I, I continue when we look at foreign governments, such as the government of Russia, um, for an example, this idea that the people did not agree to their government is, is easier to digest um when when we look at russia we can quite easily admit that putin has opposition within his country and not everyone has consented to the system um western media says the same corporate press says the same that you know putin has illegitimate elections they're rigged um he is not representative of their people uh or that putin is in power by force alone um and I say maybe we we need to admit the same applies to our government as as well. And to further demonstrate that point, um, we I, I turn in the Article 2 of Sama bin Laden's second argument about taxation. And I, I begin with a quote from Murray Rothbard in um, his essay Anatomy of the State, when he defines the state as that organization and society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in a given territorial area in particular it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payment for services rendered but by coercion and i say that uh this definition by rothbard um, strengthens spooners above argument about consent and um, it serves as a good transition to Bin Laden's second argument regarding taxation um, to, to further argue that the people are responsible for uh, the U.S. government's actions um, or individuals within the U.S. government uh, and their actions. Uh, Bin Laden argues that the American people are the ones who pay the taxes which fund the planes that bomb us in Afghanistan, the, the tanks that strike and destroy our homes in Palestine Um, And then he concludes, so the American people are the ones who fund the attacks against us, and they are the ones who oversee the expenditure of these monies in the way that they wish through their elected candidates. Um, And I I say in in conjunction with the the previous quotation from Spooner, uh, libertarianism's answer to this argument is is very simple. Uh, As indicated in Rothbard's above quote or earlier mentioned quote, um, libertarianism regards all taxation as theft, and taxation is not the voluntary giving up of, of one's money uh, to a charity. In, instead, people are required to pay taxes by force, and if someone refuses to pay taxes, they may be audited, their property may be stolen without due process, and they may be imprisoned. And if they resist imprisonment, they may they may be killed. Um, and I should have included in here, or uh, maybe links to. Um, the the story of Irwin Schiff, Peter Schiff's father, who who I believe was a political prisoner for advocating, um, and advocating that the income tax was illegal, and that it was unconstitutional, and he refused to pay it, and he he died in prison, um, just as an example of of what happens if you don't pay your taxes, and and to the argument that people do it willingly, um, and I say. Notably, though, in the the case of the United States foreign interventions in the Middle East, it can't actually be argued that these wars were financed through direct taxation alone. Um, Instead, these these wars have been financed through inflation, the expansion of the money supply to fuel the federal government's deficit spending. Uh, Congress and the Treasury have authorized the central bank, the Federal Reserve, to devalue the currency in order to finance the government's wars, Um, and if the federal government actually had to directly tax the people uh the american people for their wars taxes would be so high there there wouldn't be any tolerance for it so um to the idea that the american people accept this is is not true um they would not tolerate the taxes required uh to pay for the war and as a result we are what are we 31 trillion dollars in debt I'm, i'm sure it's above that now um and this is because the the government has yearly deficits in which they have to uh, the the treasury has to issue bonds and the federal reserve buys those bonds to give the federal government money to pay for their wars and it continues to go in debt um, and it's all fueled by inflation and the the printing of money and the devaluation of of the dollar and I think all of this together uh, when you consider those facts the fact that that um, the, the people uh, cannot be legally responsible because there is no written proof who uh, who voted for who um, because of the secret ballots um, because uh, this is a government that is funded through taxation um, and and because the Federal Reserve uh, really you know um, prints money and and um Devalues the dollar, debases the dollar, and, and really commits fraud. Uh, this it, it cannot be argued that the the people, um, the American people, every American person is is therefore responsible for that American government's actions, uh, for the American government's actions, and um, it's not as if you know they're just because fifty one percent of people in in a country support it magically that means that. Um, people in the other 49% should be morally or legally, legally responsible. Um, I mean, I guess you can say that they can be morally responsible in in the sense that you should stand up and you should take active participation in in your life and take on more responsibility uh, to affect change where you can. But in a legal sense, when we're talking about justice and when we're talking about libertarianism and this libertarian theory of collectivist, or libertarian theory of foreign policy, which is in response to the collectivist theory of foreign policy. um, I I don't think that it can truly be said that the people are are in the same way responsible as the government is. And um, Caitlin Johnstone is coming from a very good place and um, she doesn't want to carry water for the regime. But I do think as demonstrated by, uh, um, uh, Craig Jardula's argument, I I hope I'm pronouncing that name right. Um, that, you know, there are, uh, just conceptual errors in leftism as a whole in, in conflating the people and their government. And, and I think it is a result of, of their collectivist theory as a whole. And, and, um, you know, later in that interview, uh, with, with Dave Smith, Jimmy Dore, um, Craig and and Clint Russell, he he makes the argument. Craig makes the argument that uh you know, they, they they transition to the topic of healthcare, and they're like, well, why can't a wealthy nation and why can't their people support or the government support their people? Like like taxation, he argues, is not theft. It's it's the sharing of the people's wealth and the cor- the correct. Demonst- uh distribution of it and um essentially argues like it's it's not theft it's it's uh all the people's money um and everyone should share in all the people's money and it's it's the people's fund but it's like no the the we we can't conceive of um all the people uh consenting to that policy and agreeing to that policy voluntarily and and it's not as if uh, the the American people, as you talk about it, are a homogenous whole, and I think we have to um, see that there are individuals, and and they might associate voluntarily in a collective. Um, but the the problem with collectivist theories of of government and foreign policy in general is that. Um, instead of allowing people to voluntarily associate in collectives, it wants to pretend that this already exists naturally and then use force to get those individuals to participate. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, conclude in the article, um, that when we consider all of these facts, the argument that the people can be understood to have consented to the government and its actions through voting or taxation fails, um, and we should push back when warmongers separate the people and the government to justify interventions in foreign countries. Still, um, there are many reasons to think of government as separate from their people. As shown, warmongers do equate the people and their governments to justify the killing of innocents too. Uh, Caitlin Johnstone she she resists the idea of separating the two because warmongers do this and I think I've demonstrated that they also do the exact opposite. Um, they, they will equate the people when, when uh, beneficial and they will separate the people when beneficial. So instead, I propose that we're, we just are correct and we do separate them because they are separate. And there are individual actors that, that use purposeful action uh, to attain their own goals. And they are responsible for the actions that they take. And we should necessarily and conceptually uh, separate the people and their governments and the guilty and the innocent, and uh, use methodological individualism, the non-aggression principle, uh, and you know just accept the truth, but then do it correctly. Whereas the government uh, separates the people for um, in in the means to injustice, I think we should we should do it. and orient it towards justice. So I, I conclude the article with, instead, we should use the libertarian theory of justice and peace to identify individual aggressors and victims and denounce all forms of collective punishment and war. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I want to continue to uh, do stuff like this, write longer articles. I have another idea. Um that I, that I'm working with just in my head, uh, nothing on paper yet. Um, but I hope to do another long form podcast, just reading through my sub stacks. Um, and I, I hope you all subscribe. I'll, I'll link to it in the description. As I said before I, I read through it. Um, some of my posts are just simple quotes. Like I, I quote from Henry Hazlitt, uh, regarding inflation. Um, I, I have quotes from, um, Bastiat about the state and, uh, popular quotes like that. And I hope you, you subscribe to me there. And I hope you subscribe to me on YouTube, um, and all the other podcatchers, I'll link to those in the description as well. Uh, and follow me on social media. I'll, I'll put my link tree in, in the description so you can find all my social media platforms. Also, uh, remember to check out, uh, the new podcast that I'm managing called Ask an Austrian through the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. Um, the concept of the show is that we, we bring on Austrian economists or people associated with the Austrian school to talk about libertarian theory and Austrian economics and answer your questions that, that you can submit through um, our website. So I'll, I'll link to the website as well as the podcast. Um, and I've actually linked to the playlist uh, for the podcast on my channel. So you can, if, if you aren't subscribed to the Mises caucus, uh, on on YouTube and and you want to quickly just go over to that playlist, you should be able to find it on my homepage, uh, on, on my channel, but I would recommend that you subscribe to their channel. So, so you get updates. Um, but yeah, uh, subscribe everywhere, uh, share, this, if you liked it, uh, also comment, let me know, uh, if, if you appreciate stuff like this, give me any advice, how you would, um, respond to Caitlin Johnstone. If you agree with me, any feedback in general, um, I I appreciate it, but thank you guys so much. And I'll, I'll see you next time. And I hope you have a good, um, Christmas and a Merry Christmas and happy new year. Um, I might release one more podcast before the new year, but If not, I'll see you then.